Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Northfield Podcast Network. What you're about to listen to is an audio resource that we are hosting here on the Northfield Podcast Network. It is my dad, um, Ed Gordon. He was the pastor at Trinity Baptist Church for close to 35 years. And he passed away in December of 2021. And we have gotten access to almost 30 years of sermons that were on cassette. And we are digitizing them and we're putting them into an audio format and placing them here on the Northfield Podcast Network. So they're going to be engraved in MP3 format for everybody to listen to. And man, praying that God uses my dad's ministry the way it worked in my heart and my life to minister to thousands of people, millions of people around the world um, for God's glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. So we pray that this audio resource blesses you. If you want to find out more about the Northfield Podcast Network, you can go to my website, go to calebgordon.org. Blessings. I really, I go to Washington, D.C. kicking and screaming. It's not bad when I'm there, but I sure hate the trip getting there and coming back. But um, it's interesting. I was talking to, to Margie Gage uh, earlier, and on the buildings around Washington, the biblical quotes, the scriptures, the illustrations, the pictures that are carved in stone, all rooted, that is, all the buildings have some affirmation of the God in which we worship, to which we are accountable. Um, it, and it's interesting, it's all over. I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, it's, and, it's, and by the way, it's not hidden, it's blatant. The Ten Commandments, the places that are carved on these buildings, it's interesting that they're there. Um, and which speaks of our roots and our origin of our country. And on, and of course, on July 4th, 1776, this nation, the United States of America, uh, was born. And I, as I, as, as you study history, and, and uh, before they, before they threw me out of school, I don't believe, in looking at history, there's no nation that has ever had a better beginning than America. And if you think about those who came here in 1620 and writing the Mayflower, Mayflower Compact, God leading those people, God gave America a Lord, and that was himself. And then along with America having God as their king, he gave us as a people a, a land. And what a land we live in. A blessed, rich, beautiful, bountiful land. And God gave America a law. Not just the Ten Commandments. He gave her his word. And out of that word that he gave her, America, our founding fathers, he gave them a constitution. And that is, it is a founding document that is based and grounded in God's word. But I want to remind you that as a nation, America, we're fairly young. 
That is, we're just a little over uh, 200 years old, uh, 1976. Uh, uh, we celebrated our 200th birthday, so we're just a little over 200 years old. And as I walk the streets of Washington, D.C., and when you go there, by the way, you do a lot of walking. You walk miles and miles and miles uh, to get around Washington, D.C. And it seems to me that there's something wrong with America. And I believe that we are a nation in peril. That is, we're a nation in danger. And we as a nation are being crushed by a new wave of legal lawlessness along with illegal lawlessness. I noticed that in Washington, there seems, drunkenness seems to be a problem in Washington, D.C. Across our country, crime is thriving, immorality is blatant, and it seems that what was slowly happening has now accelerated. That is, our strength is being eaten away by a long and vicious war against the United States of America, and more particularly, against the one true God of America. Now, in Psalms chapter 33 and verse 12, it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Would you say that with me? Can we say that together? You can read it if you'd like. Ready? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I want that to burn itself into your heart today. I want us to understand that. And while I sometimes look at what goes on in our country and become a bit of a pessimist, there is some optimism, not perhaps in mankind, but the optimism is in our great God. For our great God is able to do anything. And he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above that we're able to ask or think. And I, you say, well, what's the point? The point is this. I do believe that 9-11 was a wake-up call. I really do. It was a wake-up call. And while I sometimes can be a bit of a pessimist at the way that, especially after coming home from Washington and seeing what I see there, um, there's an optimistic side of me, in spite of my thought that there's a long and vicious war against our great God and King in America. I somehow sense, as I listen to some of the leaders in Washington, D.C., that if we would allow our great God to move, I believe that there could be a new day for America. 
And wanting to be optimistic in this, I believe what I'm saying is that God is giving one more chance to the United States of America. You say, give us an example. Well, let me give you an example this way. We met with Tom Coburn this week. Tom Coburn has a testimony, by the way, that he belongs to Christ, and he's not ashamed of that. And Tom Coburn, who began with two or three others to begin reformation in our government, and who's not af afraid to take a stand for Jesus Christ in the Senate, he has now gathered, garnered around him 14 more other senators who believe as he believes. I think that's interesting. Tom Coburn stood and told me, he said, Ed, I believe there's not just 14. He says, I think we have 23 others. They're just closet guys, and we're going to bring them out of the closet. Closet Christians. And we're going to bring them out. And then there'll be 23 instead of 14. He began with three, now with 14, and soon to be, he believes, 23. And that causes optimism to rise in my pessimistic heart. It does. And I believe that God is giving a new opportunity to the United States of America. And with that thought in mind, and with this, with the word that we just read, which says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That nation who has God as its king is a blessed nation. I want us to remember a couple of things. First of all, I want us to remember our national debt. Now, I'm, I know the first thing you think of when we talk about responsibility and God being our great king, you talk about our national debt. I think it's interesting, as you walk the Senate halls, I did not see this in the House of Representatives, but in the senatorial offices and in numerous places in the hallways, it says, your portion of the national debt. And they obviously, it has a row of numbers uh, there, and it's changed regularly. But your share of the national debt, if you'd like to know, is almost uh, $30,000 per individual. That is, the national debt now equals $30,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States of America. That's your part of the debt. But that's not the debt that I'm, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get on it. The trillions that we owe, I, I really don't have the nerve uh, for we're saddled with a huge financial responsibility. But I want to speak on uh, another kind of debt that we owe. You notice it says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And so when I talk about our debt, what is our national debt? Well, I believe that our national debt is threefold. First of all, we have a debt to our forefathers. That is, you and I have a debt to our ancestors. We have a debt to those who have gone before us and who have made this nation what it is. And don't, let me explain something. We have nothing to apologize for about our Christian heritage. I'm telling you, it's everywhere in Washington, D.C. It's on, our Christian heritage is on every building. It's, it's in every document, our founding documents. It is everywhere. Have you ever thought about how our nation got its start? That is, have you ever thought about that? how our nation came to be? Why did, hold on Lynn, why did the Pilgrim Fathers come to America to begin with? Well, I'm gonna tell you, they came in 1620 
They came to North America and they came here seeking religious liberty. They were devout Christians. They were devout Christians seeking religious liberty. And in fact, the Mayflower Flower Compact, and by the way, the internet's a wonderful thing. You can go out there and type in Mayflower Flower Compact and you can find uh, URLs where you can read the original uh, copies or a electronic rendition of the Mayflower Flower Compact. And it begins by saying, here's how it starts. In the name of God, amen. That's how it starts. And they, they went on uh, to, in this compact, and they said that they came to America to the glory of God and for the advancement of the Christian faith. That is the founding document, the Mayflower Compact. That's why they came. They came to found a nation to the glory of God, not Wall Street. They didn't come here looking for gold. They came here as a people looking for God to found a nation based on biblical principles. Roger Babcock, the president of South America some years ago, when he was in the United States of America, asked why he believed that America, the North America continent, was so much more prosperous than the South American continent, even though the two of them in resources were fairly equal. And here's what Roger Babcock said. He said, it's very simple. Those that came to South America came seeking gold. Those who came to North America came seeking God. That's the difference. And you know how to know something? Psalms 33, 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We're blessed because God is our King. A nation founded unto and upon God himself. We see this in the Declaration of Independence. And if you don't have a copy of the Declaration of Independence, go online and look at it. Because it begins by saying the, this thing. Here's what our founding fathers said in the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. You say, what does that mean? Certain, certain, unlienable rights. Well, it means that there are certain things, our founding fathers said, there are certain things that we will not argue about. There are some things we're not even going to discuss. That, that is, we hold these truths to be self-evident. They're self-evident. No, they, did, they didn't dicker. They didn't argue. No ifs, no ands, no buts. All men are endowed by their creator. Now, let me just say something about our founding fathers. They did not believe in evolution. They said, they said they are endowed, all men are endowed by their creator. They didn't believe in evolution. They believed in God. And they believed in God who gave men certain unleanable rights. When they said these truths are self-evident, what does that mean? It says, well, we're not going to debate. We're not going to debate this. This is not something that's up for discussion. This is the truth. 
And we see more and more arguments today from people who talk about the rule of man instead of the rule of law. And America, one of the problems I see in local government and in national and state and national government is people have lost the ability to reason and to understand what this nation, the type of government this nation has that our founding fathers gave us. It is a republic. It is a republic and it is the rule of law and not the rule of men. When countries are run by polls, it is run by men and is run by dictators who at the whim of men change the direction we go. That's not the kind of government we have, not at all. And so we have these people today who beat the drum of the separation of church and state. Now I want to tell you something about the separation of church and state. I believe that's a pretty good law. I believe that's a pretty good rule. I, I, that, is, that is a good principle that should be abided by. But I will say this, with all the unction of my soul, that our forefathers never meant that there was to be a separation of the state from God. That, that's a place to say amen. They never meant that there was to be a separation of the state of our government from God. While the, the church is not to rule the state, that does not mean that the state was to be separated from God himself. Never, never, never. And our founding fathers, they as individuals and collectively took it for granted that we as a people would believe in God and follow him. Benjamin Franklin in the First Continental Congress, and by the way, if you look at the history of the First Continental Congress, which was formed, it was to lay the found, the First Continental Congress was to lay the foundation stones for America. And this is what Franklin said in that meeting. Franklin said, I've lived a long time, and the longer I live, the more proof I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. He continues, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without God's notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sirs, in the sacred writings, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Now he's not through. Franklin's not through. He goes on and says, I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concerning, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. You say, translate that for and make, me, make it simple. It is that we will, unless we, unless we found this nation on God himself, we will not succeed. That's what Franklin said. That is, he said, we cannot do this without God. And it is written that at this point in the First Continental Congress, when Franklin had said that, that the whole group stopped and prayed fervently. They prayed fervently. You say, what did they pray for? Specifically, it says that God would guide them. 
And then they wrote the Constitution, which provided that there should be a chaplain in the government house. They didn't intend for there ever to be a separation of God from government. Never ever. Just that the church would not rule the state. And then they provided that the Senate would be opened in prayer. And did you know that there is a government appointed chaplain? And did you know that the Senate is open in prayer? Did you know that? Still is. And then they wrote the Bill of Rights. And in Article 3 of the Bill of Rights, which they wrote, it was not meant that prayer should be banned from school, but that no one should ever be forced to pray. But they never meant that prayer should be forbidden. And so they, they began in the Declaration of Independence by saying there are certain truths that are self-evident. And they believed in God. And as you look at our founding fathers, I'm saying to you, we owe them a debt. They've left us a great document, a founding document, and we owe them a debt. Isn't it interesting that God chose great men to start this country? And I'm afraid that if we were to leave the founding of our country up, the direction of our country up to certain individuals, it would be hell itself. You think about our first president, George Washington at Valley Forge. He knelt in the snow at Valley Forge and asked God to direct and bless his little ragtag army. A man who was said to have kneeled whenever Congress prayed. Whenever they prayed, he kneeled. You look at Abraham Lincoln, who brought us through as president a time of tremendous turmoil in America. And I quote Abraham Lincoln who said, without God's direction and blessing, I cannot succeed. With his direction and blessing, I cannot fail. Abraham Lincoln. I'm saying we owe a debt to our fathers, our forefathers. You see, our founding fathers believed in and trusted God. Um, you look at the, you look at our the hymn of our republic. You look at the, our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. In that national anthem, it says, in God we trust. You look at our national hymn, America. God shed his grace on thee. Great God, our King. And in our national songs, God is recognized. Now I tell you this, as I, as I read the periodicals, Time, Newsweek, and I read about this separation that is being declared in a stronger way, in opposition to our great God, it causes in me a pain to rise, its location I dare not tell. When I read or hear these people talk about, our leaders talk about uh, that our schools and our government cannot mention God. I tell you, we better go back and remember the pit from which we came. 
And we better go back and remember the foundation which was laid. And dear sweet friend, this is our heritage. And we owe that. We have a debt to our forefathers. We have a debt. Number two, therefore, we have a debt to our descendants. <clears throat> that is, you and I are laying the framework for what we're going to leave to our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. You say, are you talking about the future? I'm talking about what kind of a nation we're going to leave our children 10 years from now, 15, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now. You know, I, I, I look at the next 10 years, and I got to tell you, in the next 5 to 10 years, I fear for my children in the next 10 years. The march of our godless education system continues. The rise of sexual immorality is rampant. This, and listen, if you think godless socialism and communism has gone away, you've got another thought. It's, it's, it, it is all over our globe. It's here. Marriage in the United States of America has, been, has become merely an inconvenience. I look at what's going on in Canada and how they're banning hate speech. Bible preaching is hate speech. Dale Copeland from time to time, Dale sends out, where are those articles from, Dale? What's that out of? That you send me about Canada and different places in the gospel? What? It's a great place. One News Now, he sends that to me and about people that are being arrested for the preaching of the gospel is hate speech. Narrow-minded and hate speech in our sister country to the north called Canada. You say, Brother Gordon, what do you think? I think we're approaching a time when every gospel preacher is going to be muzzled. It's already there. Most of us are terrified to stand on a street corner and preach the gospel for fear that we're going to be arrested. How much longer will it be before the Bible's banned? Now, I hope it doesn't ever happen. But dear friend, the freedoms and blessings that we enjoy here today may not be available to our children in the next 10 to 20 years if we don't do something about it. And the freedoms that we enjoy, that we sit here today and we worship like this so freely, the freedoms that we enjoy have been blood-bought on both sides. Oh, how rich we are indeed. And we owe a debt to our children and our children's children and our children's children's children. And unless we step in the gap and do something, unless we pray and intercede for our country and take a stand for Christ, those things that we believe in and hold near and dear are going to be gone. Thirdly, and probably more importantly than other two, is we owe a debt to Almighty God Himself. Remember our verse, 33, 12? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We need to remember that not only does God deal with individuals, He does. I mean, each one of us believe in responsibility of the individual. You have a responsibility to, to build a personal relationship with God through Christ yourself, right? That's true. But He also deals with people as a nation. And in God's goodness and mercy and providence, He has blessed America. 
how abundantly he has blessed America. He has blessed this nation without measure. Even the poorest people in America are richer than most all other people on earth. We are, even our poorest. Now, I'm not saying we ought not help the poor. I'm just saying compared to people who live in other countries, even our people who declare themselves to be the least of the least financially, materially, have more than most of the others in the world. My, how God has blessed us. We're an island of plenty in an ocean of need. You think of war, the wars in which the world has been engaged in the past. And let me just say this to you because I want to make this clear. We are in a war right now. America is. There is a spiritual war that you and I are engaged in. It is a war of religious ideals. And the Islamic fascist killers, terrorists, have nothing planned good for America. They don't. I want you to understand that. But you want to know something? Until 9-11, all of us went to bed secure in the fact that we never had to worry about where the bombs would fall tonight. We never, we've never lived in a country where we went to bed wondering where the next air raid would take place. Since 9-11, we've been less secure, but isn't it interesting since 9-11 how there's been no other attack? You say, will there be another? Sure there will. Why? Because our, we're surrounded in this world by madmen who hate Christianity, who hate our Christ, and who hate our God. My, how God has protected this nation from war in herself. How God has blessed us with material resources. In my house, we think of those things, how we ought to come out and recognize God and fall on our faces and turn from our sin and say, oh God, forgive us. God, thank you for the, your riches toward us. He has blessed us as a nation. Second, let me, not only do I mention our national debt, let me mention our national danger. Because America is in a very precarious position. I want you to go to Proverbs 14. Now keep your finger in Psalms because you're going to come right back to Psalms 9. But I want you to go right, I want you to go right behind the book of Psalms and look at, look at Proverbs chapter 14. Now I want you to look at verse 34. Proverbs 13 uh, 14, excuse me, Proverbs 14 and verse 34. Righteousness, I want you to mark these verses. Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a what? Remember God not only holds us accountable as individuals, but he also holds us accountable as a nation. And the connection is righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to a nation, to a people. Look at Psalms 9. Psalms the ninth chapter, and look at verse 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. Now, I want you to mark that verse. 
the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. All the nations that forget God. What's the point, Ed? The point is this. The biggest threat to the United States of America today is not socialistic communism and memorality. It's not the biggest threat. He said, well, what is? It's not the Islamic terrorist. He said, well, what is? It's God himself. The God who has blessed us and abundantly shed his grace upon us is our biggest threat. If he turns to judge us. And he is sworn by his word that sin must be punished. Sin must be punished. Understand that. As we look at our national debt, we owe a debt to our children and our forefathers. As we look at America and the dangers we face, our greatest threat is God himself. Now along with that, I want to mention that there are other threats, and that's socialism and communism. Socialism and communism. Did you know that in the United States of America, today, there are more communists in the United States of America than before when Russia fell to communism? There are more communists in America today than before when Russia fell to communism. It's a cancer. It's a cancer. We try and deal with communists. You think of Korea and the dictator, the communist dictatorship that exists in China. And let me just tell you something. How many believe that communism is dead in Russia? Don't you believe it? Don't believe it. You say, well, what's so wrong with communism as a form of government, Ed? Well, first of all, it's atheistic. And probably I shouldn't even say anything more about it, should I? When I say communism is atheistic and as, a, as, a, as a political philosophy, should I have to say anything more about it? I mean, when you say what's wrong with it, just say it's communistic. What else can I say? I mean, that, that in and of itself is enough. Karl Marx said religion is, a, is the opiate. It, that is, it's the dope of the masses. Marx, who said religion does not create man, man creates religion. It's cancer. Atheism is a problem, even in America. That is, it is, that is, it is, atheism is, is unspeakably immoral. That is, if you don't love and trust our Lord, then you believe in no fixed standard of right and wrong. That's part of the problem with communism. There's no fixed standard of right and wrong in communism because they are atheistic. There is no moral accountability to anybody or anything. And therefore, for a communist, for them to tell the truth, if it benefits them, then they'll tell the truth. But if the truth doesn't benefit them in, in some, you know, we try and have meetings with communist countries and try and meet with them to establish some sort of a dialogue but for them to tell the truth, they would only tell the truth if it's expedient for them, that if it's, it does them good. But if the truth doesn't help them, then they're, no, they're under no obligation to tell it, then they'll lie. And, and in their culture, it applies in every area, whether it's murder or stealing, it matters not, because communism, atheism, is amoral. That is, they're their own God. They're their own standard. When Stalin 
during World War II was meeting with Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. Roosevelt, uh, Winston Churchill asked Stalin the question in the purge, Churchill asked him, said, how many peasants, is the exact question was, how many peasants did you liquidate? Stalin held up 10 of his little pudgy fingers and said, 10 million. 10 million. With a smile. And he did it in four years. But Stalin said, it had to be done. That's the mind of a communist. That is the mindset that is the Islamic terrorist that we deal with. Well, I'm going to have to quit. Let me give you one more. There's a, a third danger I want to mention. It's the danger of corruption. That is the danger within the America itself. And I personally fear this more than I do any other outside threat, and that is the corruption that's in our country. And I fear a judgment from Almighty God because of it. You say, illustrate that, Ed. I want you to look at what amuses us as a country. What amuses us? Huh? Filth. Say it louder, Iris. Filth. Filth. That's right. It amuses us. Look at our morals. Look at our morals. Look at the perversion. We as a, as a nation have forgotten how to blush. We don't even remember how to blush anymore. We're a nation which has forgotten how to weep. And we're faced with an absolute tidal wave, a tsunami of immorality in our country. And we stand and we sing, God bless America. The question is, is why should he? Why should he? Now, you say, what does that mean to us as a church? Well, I'll tell you, there's, a, there's another danger. And it's the danger of complacency. You say, what's the danger of our complacency? That as we come to church like this on a Sunday morning, we hear about our national debt and our national danger. We understand that we have a responsibility as a people toward God himself and to others for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And we hear sermons like this. We go home. We eat way too much. And then we have to lay down in the recliner and take a nap because we've eaten so much that it causes us to, to be sleepy and indolent. And we forget about what was said. Doesn't mean anything anymore. We come, we listen, shrug our shoulders, and we leave. And forget about our national debt. And forget about our national danger. But we owe a debt. And we have a danger that we face every day. And the danger that you and I face is the danger of complacency. That we just become complacent in our Christianity. That is, we, we, we contain our Christianity within the four walls of the church that has never lived outside of this building. And it never makes a difference in the lives of those that we live with, that we walk with. And we owe them a debt. And there's a danger we face by being complacent. When it comes to revival in America, when it comes to a nation being right with God, who does God hold responsible 
for a nation being right with him. The lost? Do you remember in 2 Chronicles 7? What? If my people, which are called by my name, will turn from their wicked ways, he says, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. So he doesn't ascribe the responsibility of a nation to the lost, he ascribes it to the saved. Brother Gordon, are you telling us that the ills of America lie at the doorstep of the church? I am. I am. Why do you think, why do you think the church is at fault? Because we become complacent. It's always somebody else's responsibility to be engaged and active. And I'm not talking about political activism. I don't believe the church has any business being in political PACs, political action committees. You say, well, what should the church be involved in? Evangelism. There's only one way to change a human heart, and that's not with money. There's only one way to, and listen, Islamic fundamentalism is a religious idea. Communism is a political idea, a social and political idea. And you say, well, Brother Gordon, how do you deal with those ideas? Well, America has approached dealing with these ideas with bombs and bullets. Now, I realize there's a place for war. Israel, God used Israel in war. I realize there's a place for that. But the church doesn't use bombs and bullets. What does the church use? A better idea. And Caleb, what's the better idea? Christ is not the better idea. He's the only idea. He's the best. He's the only idea. That's right. It's not that Christianity is just one of the world's great religions. It's not that Christianity is one of the great ways to God. Christianity is the only way to the God or he's none of the ways. Either Christ is the only Savior or he's none of the Savior. I mean, he's nothing. You say, well, Brother Gordon, that's religious intolerance. Well, you'll have to blame that on God himself. Say amen. You say, Brother Gordon, you mean God is narrow-minded? He certainly is. And I have no intention of being any broad-minded than he is. I'll be as broad-minded as he is on this subject. The best idea is Christ himself. And the way to change one idea is with a better idea. You know, I've always used that illustration. Caleb can remember the time that Sparky bit me. Remember the time Sparky bit me? I had a dog that had absolutely, he was a great dog to the kids. He never bit you, did he? He would never bite the children. He was the kind of dog, they go swimming in the pond, and I'd have to tie him up. Don't say anything, Iris. I'd have to tie him up. And the reason I'd have to tie the dog up is because if he went to the pond with them, when they got in the water, he was so terrified of them being in the water that he would jump in the water and grab them by the arm and swim to pu and pull them out. Is that true? L and would not let go. He would clamp onto their arms with his, not hurt them, but wouldn't let go until he got them to the shore. And when he got the kids to the shore, he'd let go of them. They'd jump back in, he'd jump back in. So we'd have to tie the dog up because the dog was extremely protective of the children. But there's one thing about my dog, Sparky. And that is that if you ever messed with him, his food is one thing you could count on, Irish, you get bit. I did. If you ever, 
If you ever went up to him and tried to take something he was chewing on out of his mouth to see what it was, there's one thing you can count on. When you reach down and grabbed it, he's going to let go of what he had and bite you and then take it back. That was the way he did business. But I discovered something about taking things away from him. Like he would catch a rabbit and he'd hold on to a rabbit. He wouldn't kill it, he'd just hold on to it, play with it. Well, you want to go out and take the rabbit away from him, little bunny rabbit? What I would do is I'd go in the house and I'd get a chunk of hamburger meat. I would. I'd roll up a ball of hamburger meat and take it out there and wave it under his nose. He would let go of the rabbit and take the hamburger meat and then I could take the rabbit and walk away with it. But if I tried to take the rabbit away, he'd kill the rabbit and me both. He said, what's the point of that? The way you changed his mind was something better. The way you changed his behavior was with something better. And the way to change the world in which we live is with God's ideal, not idea. It's with God's ideal. And God's ideal is the Son of God himself, the Savior of mankind. And the church needs to be about sharing the gospel of Christ with, it, with its neighbors, with a country. Don't be complacent. Let's all stand.